Welcome to It's a Good Life, where it's all about helping entrepreneurs think, feel, and do better. Before we begin, I want to tell you about It's a Good Life Plus, our new ad-free subscription on Apple Podcasts. All you've got to do is open the Apple Podcast app and click on It's a Good Life. You'll see a banner under the logo that removes ads and unlocks early access to episodes. It's just five bucks a month, and there's even a free trial. Either way, continue listening to It's a Good Life and sharing the show with others. And here's our man, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to It's a Good Life. I'm your host, Brian Buffini, and today I have a very, very special guest for you. His name is David Rubenstein, and David's co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlyle Group, which is one of the largest, most successful private investment firms. You may recognize David from the Rubenstein Show, the peer-to-peer conversations, at Bloomberg Wealth, or one of his New York Times best-selling books. And today, we're here to talk about his newest book, How to Invest. Uh, Masters of the Craft. And in his book, David interviewed many of the top investors in the world, which he, by the way, has done rather well. He's a very humble man, a brilliant guy. He's also a billionaire in his own right. So his words are very powerful. And I'm really excited, David, to, to have you join us today from New York. Thanks for joining us. Well, my pleasure. I wish I could be in San Diego where you are rather than New York where I am, but I can't do that right now. But thank you very much for having me. David, you're one of the most unusual characters, if you can take that in the best ways possible, because you're a hugely successful man with a great company, an investment firm. But when I first got exposed to you, I thought you were a reporter. You are an enormously curious human being. You do great interviews with some of the best people. You must have been the curious George of your family, were you? Well, I'm an only child, um, so uh, I guess uh, there's a Yiddish word called yenta. Yenta means you want to know everything. And so my mother always said, don't be such a yenta when you have guests over the house, because I was always asking people questions, and I guess uh, I continue to do that. Well, that is a great one. On another day, I'll tell you a story how the president of Israel was my grandfather's next-door neighbor in Ireland. Okay. So they grew up great friends. So we had all these little Yiddish phrases in our Irish family growing up. So there you go. But before we dive in, talk about your book. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up and what got you into the world of investing? I am uh, an only child, grew up in a blue collar setting in Baltimore. My parents dropped out of high school to get married. My father had been in World War II, came back, met my mother. They got married at an unseemly age of 20 and 17. I was born more than nine months later. And I was um, you know, in a very modest uh, setting. My house was about 800 square feet. My father made about $10,000 a year. Uh, as I said, I'm the only child. And so I knew that to get anywhere in life, I have to do it myself. So, uh, you know, I just did what I could to, you know, get, get, get along. But I have to recognize that I was lucky in life. I wasn't a great scholar. I was intelligent, but not a great scholar. I wasn't a great athlete. I wasn't charming. I wasn't handsome. I wasn't wealthy. I had nothing going for me. So I just kept plugging along like the tortoise against the hare. And in one of my books on leadership, I point out that sometimes people in the second and third third of life do better than they did in the first third. And I'm probably one of those people. I got lucky. The people who were the superstars in the first third, sometimes they just kind of flame out and they don't turn out to be the superstars. The people running this country um, or your home country, they often are people who were not that well known when they were younger. In fact, very few people would have been predicted to be president of the United States who actually became president of the United States when they were young. Well, and you've, you've had that great interest all along. And I know in your book, you've talked a lot about there's a lot of blue-collar characters in there who are blue-collar billionaires today, which is 
I mean, that's that's right. Isn't that what it's all about? I mean, look, I came to America. I had 92 bucks in my wallet. Not an uncommon story. My dad was a house painter. And then I got in a motorcycle accident and where I owed, you know, 250 grand in bills as a 19 year old. And I'm 7,000 miles away from home. But I had a chance here to make a living and then make a business and then build a fortune. And it's it is America. It is such a great opportunity. And if you're willing to grow and, you know, in your book, you talk a lot about these masters of the craft. And a lot of them were not silver spoon guys. A lot of them were people like yourself that came from blue collar backgrounds. Talk a little bit about some of these characters you met. I interviewed the best investors in the United States with, you know, obviously you can't have every one of the best investors, but I've had 20 some of them. And they're all, you know, people made a lot of money with very few exceptions. Some work for endowments, but they're not very wealthy. But the people who are in the private sector have made staggering fortunes. Almost all of them came from blue collar backgrounds or lower middle class backgrounds. Uh, people who come from very, very wealthy backgrounds are not generally going to turn out to be the great investors because they probably aren't going to be hungry enough. They're not going to be driven enough to do that. So you and I have a similar background, it sounds like. We didn't have any money. So you knew if you're going to get anywhere in life, you had to do it on your own. Um, I have three children. They're all in what I call the highest calling of mankind, private equity. But, you know, whether they'll, you know, whether, whether they'll be as, dr- as driven as I am, I don't know. It seems unlikely. And as you may know, um, the hardest thing in the world to do really well is raise children. It's even harder if you have wealth. Because very often you see children from wealthy families don't seem to have the drive that you really want them to have. Well, I think one of the things that's been great for me is having my mom and dad still living in Ireland. You know, we had 710 square feet. So, right, the first liar never has a chance, right? We had six kids in 710 square feet. Grandparents living with us on the weekends. And my kids would get to go home and visit this all the time and reconnect. And my parents lived in that house for 65 years. And I'm happy to say, like, my kids have developed that juice. And they're in different environments. My daughter's an equestrian rider, but she takes that kind of what we call the immigrant mindset. So I was always trying to instill in them that immigrant mindset, you know, to pursue it as if you're a new person coming to the country, whatever endeavor you are. It is possible though. And I know your kids are doing very well. They might not have the same yenta that you have, but they they seem to be doing well. Look, I drove my uh, 10-year-old son when he was 10. He's now uh, 32. But when, when I drove my 10-year-old son to see the house I grew up in, which was 800 square feet, it was a row house. And he said, Dad, that's not so small. You have 10 doors. I said, no, that's 10 different houses. <laughs> he just didn't realize the house could be that small. And this, uh, is, you know, this is hilarious, Dave, because I did it with my kids, a row house, and it was four doors. Right. And they go, that's not so small. What are you talking about? It's the same story. Same thing. So, uh, you know, <laughs> in those days, uh, you know, you didn't know anymore. And uh, you, 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 you grew up with what you inherited. You, you know, you can't say, well, I wish I was rich. You'll never get anywhere. You just do the best you can in the circumstance you find yourself in. So talk to me. How does a boy from Baltimore end up billionaire investor with the Carlyle Group? How did you do it? Um, luck is the most important uh, word, I guess. What happened was I was interested in government and politics. I, I, when I was growing up, there were no billionaires to speak of in the United States. There were no private equity firms, hedge funds, tech startups. So if you were if you were Jewish, you'd say, OK, I'll be a lawyer or a doctor. And I didn't think I was going to go to medical school. I didn't think I could get through the science courses. So I went to law school. I was interested in, in politics. And ultimately, I wanted to work in the White House. So I went to work in the White House uh, for Jimmy Carter. I was inspired to do that by a man who was Irish in his background, uh, John Kennedy. When I was young, he was uh, a dashing young president of the United States. And I didn't think I could ever be a candidate, but I thought I could be an advisor. So I did ultimately get a job working at the White House for President Carter. After we lost the election uh, in 1980, I had to go back and get a real job, which was working as a lawyer. I wasn't very good at it. 
So if you're not good at something, you have to find something else. Nobody ever won a Nobel Prize hating what they do. You have to love what you're doing. And I didn't like practicing law, and my clients didn't like my practicing law either. They didn't think I was very good. <laughs> so I, I started a firm on a whim in 1987 uh, with no money. I recruited some people and told them I was going to get some money, but I didn't really know where I was going to get it. And then we grew it to a firm that's now manages about $400 billion. So it's been, uh, it's been successful. Uh, no doubt. No doubt. It. Let me ask you this question, because it's, it's a huge deal to say, I'm not good at something, especially, like you say, in Ireland, you're either going to be a pop star or a priest. You know, that was our deal. So here it is, your mom and dad, get a good job, get your degree. You went to law school. It takes an awful lot of guts to say, you know, this isn't the highest and best use of my life. This is not my calling. This is not what I'm gifted at. How did you make that decision? Like, that's a lot of chops, a lot of chutzpah, as you would say. Well, I'm an only child, so my mother was very attentive to what her only child was doing. When I was practicing law after I left the White House, I didn't realize I realized I wasn't that good at it. And I didn't enjoy it. So I told my mother I was going to start an investment firm, and she got horrified because she said, you don't know anything about business, so do this. Keep your law license. Make sure you stay a member of the bar. You have something to fall back on. So to honor my mother, I'm still a member of the D.C. bar. <laughs> you know, my mother told me, because I did accounting, my mother said, hey, if this seminar malarkey doesn't work out, make sure you keep your accounting credentials. Same situation. God bless them. God bless them. They meant, they meant good stuff. So how did you go about building it? I mean, how did you go about actually getting the people to invest? What I did is this. I said, you, there's an old saying in Washington, D.C., when you're getting kicked out of town, get out in front and pretend you're leading a parade. What does that mean? It means take advantage of the situation you find yourself in. You're getting kicked out of town, pretend you're leading a parade. I was living in Washington. I wasn't credible enough to go to New York and start an investment firm. So I said, I understand companies heavily affected by the federal government better than those guys in New York. Sounded good. I'm not sure it was true. And then ultimately, I began in the beginning to bring in some government people. I brought in former uh, Secretary of State Jim Baker, former Secretary of Defense Frank Carlucci. So you had relationships. Yes. George Herbert Walker Bush, they were better known. Nobody would want to hear me make a speech at dinner. But if you, I said Jim Baker is going to make a speech, people would show up. But I did two things that changed the face of private equity with my partners. One is private equity was a small cottage business. And we basically, was, you had one fund and you did one fund and four years later you raised another one. I decided to have multiple funds, a buyout fund, a growth capital fund, a real estate fund. And so have a, an institutionalized business by having multiple funds. And I could have a for, a for the back office, a fundraising team, a accounting team that would take care of all the funds. And secondly, I decided to globalize it. So I went around the world to make a team in Europe, Eastern Europe. Uh, Central, uh, in Latin America, Japan, Asia, and so forth. So we had a global business and, it's, and a heavily institutionalized business, and that's how we grew it. And we also obviously had a good track record. No doubt. And that sounds a little more than look to me. That's, that's pretty brilliant. That's great strategy, good promotion, and then building relationships. And I want to talk about that later on because one of the things I admire so much about you today is how you build relationships. You do this work with the political characters you might be the last moderate left in America where you bring all the characters together, That's true. connect them, get them to eat and hang out together and get the Republicans and the Democrats together. You're, you're the last of the, you're, you're Switzerland. Well, what you're referring to is I host a dinner once a month for members of Congress only, and I interview a great author there and members come. Uh, most recently, I interviewed Bill uh, McRaven, who was the man who led the, the search for and the capture of Osama bin Laden. And uh, we had 250 members of Congress there. Brilliant. And I know they love it. And I've heard feedback for I have relationships on both sides of the aisle. And they go, you know, Rubenstein's is the one place we're all allowed to get together and hang out. Congratulations to you. As you know, Thank you. you've come a long way. You've come a long way from that row house in Baltimore, my friend. In your book, and it's How to Invest by David Rubenstein. I'm 
those are watching the YouTube here. It's a great read. I've gone through it a couple of times. You talk about the three different categories of investing that you learn and that you use, and then also from investing. You got the mainstream, the alternative, and then the cutting edge. Right. You spend a few minutes. There's people here who want to invest. They'd love to be the next David Rubenstein. Historically, uh, there are uh, investments were in a category that we now call mainstream. It was stocks and bonds and some real estate. And that's what people mostly did, stocks and bonds and some real estate. In the 1970s, a new era, area uh, came along, and it was now called alternatives. Uh, but that includes buyouts, venture capital, growth capital, uh, distressed debt, opportunistic real estate, which is higher uh, say volatility real estate and maybe higher return. And so that's what people did to get higher rates of return. And now we have things I call it the cutting edge, which are very, very risky, potentially great upside, but not for everybody. An example of that is, is uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, I interviewed a person for the book who made a lot of money in cryptocurrencies. He's obviously made less recently, but still he's way ahead. Uh, or, or another thing might be ESG. ESG is a type of investing we focus on uh, on environment, social, uh, and governance kinds of concerns. So there are different kinds of things. For the average person, the average person, uh, the best thing probably is to buy an index fund. Because if you have, you're a doctor, you're a dentist, you're a real estate person, you don't have time to really follow the markets minute by minute, hour by hour, and give your money to somebody who really knows what they're doing. Uh, I'm not in the business of taking that kind of money, but I'd say somebody that, that does uh, stock investing or fixed income investing, an index fund with very, very modest fees. There are plenty of those out there. For somebody who wants to be an investment professional and younger, I encourage people to do it because it's a good profession. And also, you're doing something good for society. If you're the venture capitalist who put money in Moderna, and Moderna came up with a COVID vaccine, you've done something useful for society. So I think investors get a bad rap when people think they're just greedy. They actually are doing something useful if they do a good job. Especially if you get real good companies who've done a good job and continue to do so. I know you just recently interviewed Warren Buffett, and he's had a, a, such a big impact. What, what did you learn from him? Well, he's a lot smarter than I am is one thing I learned. Um, I also wish I could have his genes. He's in his 90s, and he's in good shape, <laughs> um, mentally very sharp. Um, but what he also preaches is, Buy something you, that you know something about and hold on to it. When you sell repeatedly, you are basically uh, doing a lot of transactional costs kinds of things, and you're also paying a lot of taxes. If you hold on for the very, very long term, things will appreciate, and you're compounding more money more uh, efficiently. Well, he's definitely been a foundation for, I think, establishing a lot of reason into the market. You know, invest in what you know. Invest for the long haul. When people get nervous, I get greedy. When people get greedy, you know, I get nervous. All those kind of Great principles. All right, great. You talk about in your book, successful investors and those who do a great job predicting the future, then act well on those predictions. You're talking to a bunch of entrepreneurs here. We try to we try to give them great data, you know, whether there's a recession coming, whether the market's down, interest rates are up. What advice do you have for someone who's an entrepreneur, you know, the cornerstone of American business, right? They've got anywhere from 10 to 50 employees. They're banging it out or maybe they've got three or four. What advice would you have for those folks? from an investment standpoint, and then also for the, the upcoming year that we're all facing. I, I don't know whether we're going to go into a recession. It's too early to say. Everybody's predicting it, but nobody knows for certain. So when we have a recession, if we do, everybody will come out of the woodwork and say, see, I told you so. Well, we just don't know for certain. But look, the real key is this. You have to find something you enjoy. Uh, if you're starting a business, you're working a business, and you don't like it, you're not going to be good at it. You have to find something you're interested in. You want to go to work every day. and It's not work. It's pleasure. So if you're building a company, you've got to make certain that you really love what you're doing and you really believe in it. You can't fake believing what you're working on. 
And so don't give up. My company, I thought, would go under several times. Warren Buffett had troubles at the beginning. Everybody's had troubles who builds a company. So don't give up and just persist, persist, persist. That's brilliant. Let me ask you this. You interviewed 23 brilliant people. You've interviewed a lot of people before. You've done very well. The Carlisle Group, and again, I've studied the Carlisle Group, and I know you know how you guys weather the storm and the Great Recession and all those kinds of things. What did you learn personally interviewing these people who, who've been great investors? Well, they're, they're, what they have in common is they, they go against the grain. Uh, the most Everybody can go and say, it's a recession coming and I'm going to get out of the market. The people that do well are people that go against conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom today is the market is coming, is soft, and we're going to go into recession. So people are selling. I think the best thing to do is be buying now. Things are, are relatively cheap now, and they're going to come back. Uh, the world always comes back. And so while you may not hit the bottom of the market, you don't need to, to be at the bottom or the top of the market when you're making investments. You need to basically believe in what you're doing. And right now, I think, is a good time to be buying because I think the economy will come back. You know, I, I just recently saw a graph on people who miss out on the, the days when the market regains its strength. You know, the people who take their money out of the market. And as someone who's got ten grand in the market over a 20-year period of time, turns it into 60, I think the number was. And people who come in and out have turned it into 800 bucks. One of the dynamics we're seeing is millennials are more likely to pull their money out three times faster than the previous generations. And they miss out on a lot of this. And it's, you know, they're used to instant gratification, instant information. You know, you got 30-year-old kids like I do. You know, they're, they're watching the phones. They, they can get instant access to information. They're more likely to do this. What advice do you have for people who, they love the tech, they, they like the action of the market, but they're missing out on these opportunities because they're trying to time the market? Well, you should give your money to people that know what they're doing and let them do it. And don't be obsessed with market oscillations every day because you'll drive yourself crazy. And so don't try to you know get in the market when you think it's going up or get out when you think it's going down. Find good companies, good managers, and listen to the managers and I put in my book some of the things I think you should do when you're picking fund managers, the kind of th- criteria you should have. So in the end, don't be obsessed with the market oscillations every day. It's going to drive you crazy. How have you managed to stay apart from that? I mean, you know, I'm living in San Diego. We don't have this frenetic pace in San Diego. You know, you have this frenetic pace in New York. There's all this energy. There's all this juice, which is the magic of the city. Buffett used to say people take the subway to advise people with Rolls Royces, how to invest their money, right? You've got this. You've been an against-the-grain thinker yourself. And the same in D.C., right? That's why you're able to bring all these people from Congress together. How have you been able to maintain that against-the-grain philosophy yourself? Well, in the end, you get, as you get older, you get a little bit wiser, and you, you know, realize you've made a lot of mistakes, and you learn from your mistakes. And I try not to, you know, I try not to mix my net worth with my self-worth. I don't measure how uh, important a person I am or unimportant a person I am by how much money I made that day. You should have certain things you want to do with your life, and they shouldn't be related to just making money. You should want to help other people do something that leaves a mark on society more than just how much money you made. So I try not to confuse my net worth with my self-worth. That's a brilliant statement. One other question I have here for you. Again, entrepreneurs, small business owners, they're reading all the headlines, and obviously we have clickbait more than we ever had. Oh, the world's going to fall apart. The market's going to fall apart. You're going to be laying off thousands of people. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs right now coming into a market like this and, you know, maybe how to grow their business and win? Well, there's going to be a less competition in some sense. Fewer people are probably starting businesses now, or many people are giving up their business if they're not going right, right, well right now. But I would say persist, have people that you trust with, with you, but 
the best way to um, make something work is you have to convince other people to follow you. You can't do everything by yourself. How do you convince people to follow you? Learn how to write well in a convincing way. Learn how to talk well. You don't have to be Martin Luther King or Thomas Jefferson in writing or talking, but you've got to learn how to be persuasive. And the best way to persuade people to follow you and do what you want is to lead by example. You want people to do X and Y and Z, do X, Y, and Z yourself, and they'll follow you. And if you are a really good leader, people will follow you because they want to follow somebody that really uh, it, it does, does things that they admire. Well, you are a leader worth following, my friend. You've done a, a fantastic job. You, you lead by example. The book is How to Infest, Masters of the Craft. It's a fabulous read. I highly encourage it. We have a book buying audience, and we have a, an entrepreneurial audience that are trying to grow themselves. And I like the fact that you, you take things from the billionaire level and then go, okay, yeah, go buy an index fund. You take things from a, a billionaire level and say, Thank you. enjoy what you do. Right? I love that phrase, no one ever won a Nobel Prize doing something they hate. You know, persist. And I, I do think those tips of writing well, talking well, leading well, there is going to be less competition and fortune favors the brazen. Those of us who've been around for a, a few decades and have had a chance to build successful businesses, we know we've all, we've all come from a difficult circumstances and challenges. So I think it's great. David, I have five questions if I can. And I ask everyone we've ever had on our show from celebrities to potentates, these five questions. All right, go ahead. So here's number one. What's the single best piece of advice you've ever been given? The single best piece of advice is that Jim Baker used to say, prior preparation prevents poor performance, <laughs> which is to say, always be prepared. Know what you're talking about, knowing what you're, what you're going to do. Love it. That's the seven Ps, Jim Baker. Okay, what one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? Be uh, more charming, uh, better looking, um, have the appeal. This weekend at the Kennedy Center Honors, we had George Clooney. You know, he had gray hair. I have gray hair, but somehow his sex appeal is much greater than mine. Touche, touche. Okay, what book has been most instrumental in your life? I would say the most influential book probably is uh, the Bible. The Bible is uh, obviously a compilation of many different uh, tales and stories and other kinds of things. But in there, you have almost everything about human nature. So I would highly recommend that. As you had to be on a desert island, take that one book. What character in the Bible do you identify with then? If, it's, if you got the Bible, what, what one character you go, oh, I identify with that one. David, of course. And they still love him. I, I remember when I went to Israel the first time and I saw a Mac Davids. I know no, that's, that's when you've made it. What one movie that you've watched over and over again? So what's, if it's on and you're scrolling through channels, which I know you don't do a lot of, but uh, if there's one movie you watch over and over again or pieces of it, what would it be? Well, I, I put it this way. The one movie I would say of all the movies is probably The Godfather, number one uh, or number two. They're both great movies. Um, then the, the funniest movie was It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Oh, I love it. As a kid, that was my favorite. That was uh, It's great. I love that movie. Every part of it was funny. And it was great. I love that movie. The big W. The big W at the end. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. That was one of my I, that's a Christmas movie in Ireland. I don't know why. But uh, anyway, Spencer Tracy. That was brilliant. Last but not least, uh, David, what does the good life mean to you? The good life means that you are healthy, you are emotionally uh, happy with what you're doing with your life, and you have uh, people to share your life with that you want to share your life with, either a partner or children or grandchildren, and you feel like you've done something useful with your life on your time on the face of the earth. You've contributed to society in a way that your children, your partner, your grandchildren would say, I'm really proud of what he or she did. You bet. Well, you need to be very proud of what you've done, and we're blessed to have you. The book is tremendous, How to Invest. We thank you for all your work and spending time with us today. My pleasure. 
We're going to have you hang on the line till my mother gives us a little Irish blessing. She always finishes the show. She's 92, and she does a little Irish blessing. It's kind of one of the most popular features of our program. So over to you, Therese. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. Thank you.